to bow with me to pray. Uh, Father in heaven, this we believe to be your word, and we believe it because it's true. Our believing doesn't make it true. It is true. And so, Father, we thank you for revealing that to us, uh, for enabling, enabling us to know that to be true. And now we pray that you would uh, cause it to work in our lives in a way that you've intended. Uh, we trust to bring grace and help to us as we trust in you and live out these days as witnesses of Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah in chapter 9. I want to read beginning with verse 12 through really the end of the chapter. Jeremiah in chapter 9, please. Verse 12, hear the word of God. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness, so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I said before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider the call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skilled women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly shamed. Because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up to our windows, it has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak thus, declares the Lord, their dead bodies, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom and the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert to cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel is uncircumcised in hearts. I want, if God will help me, just to take up these two verses, 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. These verses lay out for us what we're not to boast in and what we are to boast in. That sounds a bit odd. 
Not the not boasting in part, because for us, when we hear that we're not to boast in something, that, that makes sense, because for us, uh, boasting is rather unbecoming. It's uh, perhaps immoral. It sounds prideful. It, it isn't something that we're to do to boast, because we uh, put it in the same line sort of as bragging. Showing another up, if you will. But, but God says that there is something we're to boast about. Because really this word boast generically, or just sort of generally, uh, means to praise, or to glory, and to exalt, and to take confidence, and to rely upon. When we, when we boast in our team, in one sense it may be a prideful bragging, uh, but it, it may also be to say, you know, this, this team, I, I trust it to give me to give me security in some sense, to bring me joy. So I know when I root for my team and I boast in my team, it'll deliver, it'll, it'll bring me a measure of joy. We boast in our kids because they give us joy, we think, uh, we hope. And, uh, uh, and so we have that sense of, of, of boasting in them. And yes, there is a prideful boast, this boast that, that, uh, that, that says, mine is better than yours. But this boast, this exalting, this glorying in, this finding joy in, this relying upon, this taking confidence in, God says, I want you not to boast, not to rely upon, not to take confidence in, not to find your joy and security in your wisdom or your might or your money, your wealth, your riches. He says, don't place your confidence there, but rather boast in the fact that you know and understand me. He says, now that, that's worth praise. That's worth glorying and that's worth exalting. That, that really is worth putting your confidence in. That really is worth relying upon. That really is worth finding your joy there. That, because I can really deliver in that. So boast that you know, that you know me. And so he lays that out. There is this tendency, though, we realize, to boast in that which we see, that which is, we can touch, our, our, that which is, sort of helps us through the day. We think our own wisdom, our own, our own might, our own, um, our own riches. Uh, it's easy for us to even put them in a level of making them idols, we know, that to, to, to put them in a place where God ought to be. And that's really the point here, isn't it? God's saying, I don't want you to put these, place, these things uh, where, where I am really to be. We can do that individually, we can do that corporately, we can trust in our own wisdom and might and money personally, but we can also do that as a nation. We can also do that as a community of people. We can say, our nation is stronger than another, our nation is wiser than another, our nation is richer than another, therefore we're safe, therefore we're protected. And God says, oh, think about that really. Are you really in that, in that way? Now, why would Jeremiah bring these matters to our attention, this wrong boasting? Well, we know, since we've been playing with Jeremiah, reading Jeremiah for the last number of weeks, that um, he's talking about judgment, the very judgment of God. And he's in that context here in, in, in chapter 9. You can tell by what I read, but what I didn't read beginning in, in, in chapter 9, he, he speaks of, 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 of himself weeping over the people, weeping because this judgment is coming. He's speaking about the very fact that sin exists and, and that God is bringing judgment against, against his people. So in verse 12, what I did read, he asked the question, so is there anybody wise enough to, to, to see what's going on here? It's as if, as if Jeremiah has, has sort of gone ahead a bit and fast forward and said, I can see it. I can see this land lying in ruin. I can see it so much in ruin 
that the animals can't live there, that the birds won't land there, that, that the people can't exist on this land. It's just completely desolate. He says, I can see it because uh, uh, looking like that. Now, can anybody know, can anybody answer why it's like that? Can anybody really see it? Who is the wise man? Who can see the why of all of, of, all of this? Indeed, he says, what has happened is that death has come upon us. It sort of snuck up in the wind, through the window. It's, it's come in and it's taken our kings because it's at the palaces. It's taken our children. It's taking our young men. It's as if you looked out on the field and you see dead bodies laying there like dung on the field. It's as if the, the harvesters have come and, 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 and reaped the harvest and, and now all that's left is just the remains and no one is going to come and, and pick it up. The reaper has, has come and left all these dead bodies. He says, that's what it looks like. Now, can anybody tell me why? Can anybody tell me why this has occurred? Why this death has come? Why, why the people have been scattered from our place of Judah throughout other nations of the world? Why that has taken place? So the prophets should be able to tell you, but they're all false prophets. So the Lord says, here's why. Notice in verse, uh, middle of verse 12. Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness and that no one passes through it? And the Lord says, because they've forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and gone after the Baals, that is, false gods, as their fathers taught them. And so he says, I bring judgment. I'm going to bring them bitter food. I'm going to bring them, going to bring them a poisonous water to drink. All these images of real judgment that is to come that is to come upon come upon Judah I wonder in these days you know as we think about our own culture our own history anybody asking that question why did these things come well a bit different we think about 9-11 we think about tsunamis we think about earthquakes we think about tornadoes we think about war we think about famine we think of pandemics that come with disease and all of that is anybody asking this question why are these coming now it's different in some sense, than it was with ancient Judah. With ancient Judah, God had said, you're my covenant people, here's the deal, here's blessings and curses. Choose, as we said last Sunday, here's life, here's death. And so you're my people, and so I'm laying this out for you. And so they knew that if they disobeyed God, that these curses would come upon them. In fact, it's so gracious, really, of God. Do you remember the history of this time period, the history of Jeremiah's life? You remember that Jeremiah comes on the scene at the same time as good King Josiah. Now, can you remember what happened during good King Josiah's reign? During Josiah's reign, the law of God was found. It had been neglected. It had been in the temple of all places, but it had been neglected for, for years. For decades, no one had read the law of God. But now it's found, and so it's read to the people. And what's, what's there? The covenant of God. And what's there? A list of God's promises to them. What's there? A list of the blessings if they follow after God. And a list of the curses if they don't. It's as if God's saying, I'm coming to you one last time, and I'm laying this out for you, and I'm giving you the, the situation, and I'm spelling it out. And so when I bring judgment upon you, if you don't obey me, you'll be clear about that. Nobody has an excuse. You can't say, well, I didn't know the law. Because they did. It was found. It was read by Josiah. It was reinstituted, if you will, the feasts and the celebrations. 
And so as if God says, now, this is what's happened. You rejected the law even after it was read to you. You rejected the law even after you heard it. You rejected the law even after Josiah set up these ways of worship that were right ways of worship, even after Josiah got rid of all the idols, got rid of all the abominations in the temple, set this up, still you rejected me. And so this is just. And here's why that is to come. But for us still, these warnings of judgment come, devastations come. You might remember in Revelation, in chapter 16, there's a, a slice of history, and obviously people disagree about various images in the book of Revelation and when they happen and all of that. But here we have something that lays out for us bowls of wrath that come. And most things, I think, come in the context of history. These bowls of wrath that come, and, and they're representative of various kinds of great calamities on the face of the earth, whether it's fire, whether it's famine, whether it's drought, whether it's war. All these bowls of wrath are, are coming upon the earth. And what's the reason for them? Why do they come? Well, for repentance. Because the refrain that comes over and over in this chapter is, they did not repent and give him glory. Even though all of these Great calamities came. People didn't wake up and see we're finite. People didn't wake up and see, oh, God is just and holy and righteous. They didn't wake up and see and repent. And so the end of the chapter, judgment comes. You might remember in the life of Jesus, a a similar kind of discussion was had. And this is in Luke in chapter 13. We're well acquainted with it. People came to Jesus And they told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. They wanted some some responses from from some response from Jesus about the injustice of that. How could that be? These people were making sacrifices and and Pilate came and killed them. Uh, How can that be? And Jesus answered verse three of Luke thirteen. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It sounds a bit hard from Jesus, not quite feeling as we might expect him to be, rather cold, but he says, get the point of this. You're asking me this question thinking that they were, in some sense, killed because they were sinners than you, that God allowed that to happen or even brought that upon them. Do you really think there were sinners than you? Do you really think this couldn't have happened to you? And so, as things happen in the course of life in these days, something like 9-11 or Haiti earthquakes or, or pandemics or tsunamis, how would you respond to those? We're at least like this, to say they're not worse sinners than we. Should we not repent? Should we not repent? Jesus goes on. And he says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. It's as if Jesus was saying, you know, I I watch the news too. I know what's going on. Uh, Do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? He said, not only do I know what's going on, I know what you're thinking about these things. And so let 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 me just challenge you with this. Do you think you couldn't have been there? you think that couldn't have happened to you? Are you ready for something like that? He says, you need to repent. Is there anybody, Jeremiah says, so wise that you can see what's, what's happening here. That disobedience from God brings judgment. Can you 
Anybody see that? Of course, the question. Can we? This judgment's inevitable. You know, I, I know that these are solemn kinds of things to say, and not popular kinds of things to say, but it's really true. We can't ignore the very fact of this as believers in Jesus. We, 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 we know of the reality of judgment. We know of the reality of hell. And it was pictured in the days of Jeremiah as a desolation, as a place where life couldn't be animal life or birds or plants or people. It's a place of death. There isn't a pretty picture here. There isn't a way to kind of spruce this up and, and make it sort of acceptable. These are dead bodies laying in a field like dung. How else can he put it? Just to say, you don't want to be there. It's the worst condition you can only imagine. Well, because of disobedience, not repenting, not coming, not coming to God. And so he comes to the people and says to them, Now, I want to tell you what to trust in. I want to tell you what to glory in. I want to tell you what to boast in. Don't boast in your wisdom. Don't boast in your might. Don't boast in your riches. Because at any point in time, most especially the most important point in time, they will not save you. They cannot help you. You can't, Israel, Judah, think your way out of this. You can't plan your way out of this. He's already said, this is my covenant. Judgment is coming upon those who disobey. You've disobeyed. Judgment is coming. And so he tells Jeremiah, I called you before you were born to go and do this work. And you're to speak this word of judgment and restoration. I'm going to give you this word. You're going to tear down and build up. In fact, in a couple of places throughout this prophetic word, he says to Jeremiah, don't even pray for them. It's a done deal. If you pray, even if Samuel prayed, I wouldn't hear him. I'm not going to hear you. Don't pray. It's a done deal. This judgment really is, it really is coming upon them because of their sin. So you can't plan your way out of this. You can't think your way through it. You can't get strong enough. You can't make an allegiance, an alliance with another nation stronger than the ones who are going to come. That won't help you. You won't win against them. You can't buy your way out. You can't pay enough tribute. There isn't enough money to pay to the Babylonians. They don't want that. They want you. They're going to come in. They're ruthless. They're going to destroy you. They're going to scatter you throughout the land. That's simply going to happen. Nothing that you have is really going to save you in this context. Don't trust in it. We have a tendency, though, don't we, to like to trust in our wisdom. Some of us are smarter than others. That's just true. Uh, And we can take security in that when we're in our own little groups. But when something bigger than us comes, does that really help us? We like to boast in our own, our own might, but does it really save us from the righteous judgment of God? Our own riches, but it may make us happy for a time, but it really can't save us. Jeremiah had an image for these things when we Make our wisdom or our might or our money idols. In chapter 10, he refers to them as scarecrows. He refers to idols as scarecrows. Chapter 10, verse 5, uh, we read, Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They can't speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither, it is, neither is it in them to do, to do good. You know what a scarecrow is. 
to fake. Did you dress something up? It's supposed to scare the crows. But if one crow lands and the scarecrow doesn't move, and then another crow lands and the scarecrow doesn't move, then you have a whole field of scarecrows. Because they might be scarecrows, but they're not stupid. And once that scarecrow doesn't do anything but stay right there, it really can't save the field. And what Jeremiah is saying to us, you can dress up your wisdom. And that might impress other people. You can dress up your strength. That might impress other people. You can dress up your life and have riches galore and and great abundance. But that won't save you from the judgment of God. Don't boast in it. Don't rely upon it. Don't count on that. When I think of wisdom and power, I, I think of this question that God asks Job the end of the book of Job and you know the story I suspect Job experiences tremendous trouble goes through great distress wondering and questioning what's really going on here and there's a, a sense in which he's asking God God are you really wise why are you doing this to me God are you really powerful can't you really stop this and so at the end of Job God comes with this question to Job and the question is this Simply, where were you when I? And that question, where were you when I made this, Job? Where were you when I created this, Job? When were you when I created that, Job? When were you when I made this, Job? And the response to Job was that he shut his mouth. Because all of a sudden, his wisdom, and all of a sudden, his might... And all of a sudden, any resources that he might have at his command just simply vanished in the presence of infinite wisdom, infinite might. He had nothing to say. His questions, in one sense, weren't exactly answered. He still, at that point in time, didn't know quite why all that had happened to him, if he ever did. But, but, But he saw this one who was wiser, more powerful than he could ever imagine. And he just simply... Stopped, shut his mouth, and gloried in that one. What I read to you at our offering time, this parable of Jesus, he speaks of this, this rich man. We, we relate to him. If, if we get riches, it's great to store it all away and to keep it for another day. And there's some wisdom in that, just in the context of our lives, of course. But, 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 but he sunk deep in there and he said, oh, I'm safe now, I'm secure now. Nothing can hurt me, nothing can harm me. And all his accumulations, everything that he had piled up in his barns were simply scarecrows because something would come that would... Make it all for naught. He would die that night. And he had nothing in his barns to help him with that. He had nothing in his barns to deal with that. Because what he had found is that his whole life, in essence, had been a waste. Because he had accumulated all this. And he was rich towards people, but he wasn't rich towards God. He had nothing there. Nothing with which to really... Stand in the very presence of God. Nothing could keep him from this death that was to come. So, Isaiah said, here's what you are to boast in. Here's what you are to glory in. Actually, it's the Lord who speaks it. And he says, I want you to boast. I want you to glory 
and that I am the Lord. I want you to boast, I want you to glory in the fact that you know and understand me. Now, when, when God speaks about knowing him, he doesn't speak only about knowing stuff about him. We need to know things about him, obviously, characteristics about him to know him. But I said, he's, he means, I want you to know me. I want you to have entered into relationship with me. One of the best books, I think, of the 20th century is a book written by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. And Packer opens his book with this question. He says, can we say, can you say, can I say that I have known God? So that's really the question. Can we say that? Can we say that we've known God? Now, in these days, there's many who say, no, that's impossible to know God. Because he's infinite and we're finite. It's impossible to know God because all that we can know is so conditioned on our own generation, so conditioned on our own culture, that God really, as God, can't be known. We can't speak of God from one generation to another generation because the generations are so different and they view life through different lenses. So somebody in the 10th century can't say to somebody in the 18th century, this is God. And somebody in the 14th century can't say to somebody in the 21st century, this is God. And for some of these, even some people who were, you know, last week can't say to people next week, this is who God is because we're viewing him through different lenses and certainly different cultures. So one culture can't say to another culture, this is who God is because we we see him through different lenses. So, So the Americans can't say to the Chinese, this is who God is. And the Chinese can't say to, to those in, who are in the Latin culture, can't say, this is who God is. But the Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible lays this out. Yes, sure, we're influenced and our understanding by generation, by culture, and all of that. But God transcends that to us as he reveals himself to us, as he breaks through all of that. He says, this is who I am. Know me. In fact, that is the climax, really. That's the great promise that is coming. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 31, I'll just give you the, you know, I'll, I'll ruin the story for you. Um, that God says to them, and this new covenant that is to come. He says, I'm going to put my law within them. I'll write, uh, I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one of, his, one of them teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. You'll know me. That's the blessing of this covenant. That was to be the blessing to ancient Judah. That they would know God. That he would be their God. They would be their people. And he said, No, thank you. To all of that. He said, no, a new covenant is coming when you will know me. So he says, boast in that. Take glory in that. Exalt in that. Praise that. Take your confidence in that. Rely upon that. Find your joy there that you know me because, because I, I am the one who can help you to supply supply all of your needs. He says, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. Packer puts it this way, after asking the question, have I known God? He says, are we able to say, because we have known God, that the unpleasantness we have had, or the pleasantness we have not had through being Christians, does not matter to us? That's a little awkward British sentence, but, but his point is this. 
Does knowing God mean everything to us? Is that really it? That's what it means to boast Him. That's what we rely on Him. Does that mean that nothing else ultimately matters other than our knowing God? So that the pleasantness that we've had, or the unpleasant, the, I'm sorry, the unpleasantness that we've had, or the pleasantness that we haven't had, does that really matter? What really matters in the context of our life? He puts it this way. He says, We have said that when a man knows God, losses and crosses... That is, the things that we have lost and the difficulties of our lives. Losses and crosses cease to matter to him. What he has gained through knowing God banishes these things from his mind. One who really boasts in God is one who can say, God is what matters in the context of my life. Everything else I'm willing to count as loss. You might hear an echo of in, that, in those words from the Apostle Paul in Philippians in chapter 3. He says... But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ being found in him. He said, that's what's important to knowing this one who is, who is the Lord. And notice what he says about him. He says, but let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, which you should be, uh, if you're looking in your Bible or on your phone, I can do that now, by the way. It's really cool to be in a store reading your Bible on your phone. Um, I walk around people in my arrogance and say, look what I can do. And they're not impressed because seven-year-olds can do that. But, I just learned it. But, um, uh, but if you're looking there, if you have a, most versions will have the word Lord in capital, capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord in capital letters. It means that this is the name of God in his relationship with his people. There's various names for God it's throughout the Old Testament in, in the Hebrew language. But this one, Yahweh, is, is that, that name of God that he gives to Moses. And he says, when the people ask who sent you tell them, I am has sent you, because, because I want you to know that I'm the one in relationship with you. And you're to boast in me because I'm the self-existent one. I simply am. God is saying, I exist. Now we think he's always existed and will always exist, but for God he just simply always is. We think he always has been and always will be, but for God he always is. He just simply is. He's self-existent. He needs nothing, no one else. He's self-sufficient. He needs nothing, no one else. He's self-dependent. He needs nothing, no one else. He's completely independent. And we don't know anybody like that. We don't know anything without a beginning, particularly. He had no beginning. He just simply is. He says, no boast in that. Boasting that you know and understand one who is. I'm the Lord. And he says, here's, here's who I am. This is, this is my heart. Because he says, it's in these things that I delight. He says that I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. The word steadfast love in, in the Old Testament is, a, is, is, I think, for me... As important a word as exists in the whole Old Testament and the Bible. In Hebrew, it's the word chesed. 
It means steadfast love. It can be also translated as mercy. It can also be translated as kindness. If you have the New American Standard, it's my favorite translation for this word. It's loving kindness. And this word, chesed, this loving kindness, this steadfast love of God means everything. It's God's covenant love. It's this, this commitment that God has to treat us not according to law, but according to love. He says, I will love you. I will always love you with a loyal steadfast, covenantal love. I will never break my promise to you. I will always come to you. And it will delight me to come to you. And so, as he even gives his law, God speaks of this in his own character in Exodus in chapter 24. It's also in Exodus chapter 20 when he, when he gives the law. But in Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses. He showed him himself. And he declared his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He says, I'm abounding in this. There's just no, no great limits. It just overflows, this steadfast love. If you want to know me, if you want to understand me, then, then understand that I'm this God of steadfast, loyal love. That's who, that's who I am. This steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. So that's, that's who I am. Thus, when any would come before God in need, they would appeal not to God's law so much, but to God's steadfast love. This great prayer of confession in Psalm 51. David, after his deep, dark sin, he comes to God on the basis of God's loving kindness. He says, have mercy on me, O God, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. In need, when the Israelites would appeal to God, they sort of knew, if you will, if it came from the heart, and I don't mean this irreverently, they sort of knew the magic word. It wasn't please. It was according to your loving kindness. It's as if when God would hear that word, he would say, oh, that's my people. I must respond. That's why in the call to worship that I read this morning, uh, David writes this. He says, Your loving kindness, your steadfast love is better than life. As if to say, metaphorically, I can't, I can't even live without it. If this doesn't exist, if there isn't steadfast love from God, if there isn't loving kindness from God, then I, I don't even want to live. I would trade my life for it, which is impossible, of course. But that's his point. It's so great, I don't even know how to express it. It's better than anything I know. Therefore, for the whole my whole life, my lips shall praise you. And I'll bless you as long as I live. To bless God means to praise him, to speak that which is good of him. And he says, why? Because your loving kindness never fails. So there's a whole psalm, Psalm 136, that is based on the very loving kindness of God. It's, it's, a, it's a whole psalm to the loving kindness of God, the, 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 the repetitive, continual um, response, refrain, is for his steadfast love continues forever. So God says, if you want to boast in something, boast that you know me, boast that you know this about me, boast that you have had dealings with me in the context of my steadfast love. Love, so you know that whatever comes your way, even judgment, if you call to me according to my steadfast love, if you repent, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, 
My promise is that if you come to me and you appeal to my steadfast love, then I will bless you. He said, now boast in that. And then he says, boast in this too, that, 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 that I, I practice justice. Now, when we think of justice, we think of right and wrong as well. We should, we think of, of punishing those who are evil and blessing those who are good. That's justice, doing that which is right. And all of that is true. But here, this sense of justice, God is saying that, that I'm the one who has the right to rule. It's bigger than just the judicial branch. It includes the legislative and the executive. It, it, it's all of his government. He says, I'm the one who has the right to govern. I'm the sovereign one. That should be a blessing to you. You should boast in that. You can say, I don't know what's going on here, but I know the one who's ruling over all of this, and he's perfectly just and right. Everything that he does is good. All of his laws are good. The way he executes those laws are right. Every judgment he makes is perfectly right and good. And, and I'm going to trust in that. I'm going to boast in that. I'm not going to boast in, 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 in my wisdom. I'm not going to boast in my strength. I'm not going to boast in my resources. But what I'm going to boast in this one who is the sovereign one and has the right to be the sovereign one and to rule and reign over all things. And he's also the one who practices righteousness. Which not only means that he's always right, but it means he's always trustworthy that everything he says is true. Boast in that. Of course, the prophet Isaiah, hundred or so years before Jeremiah, spoke of the loving kindness, the justice, the righteousness of God. Spoke of it coming in, in a child. In Isaiah chapter 6 or chapter 9, we read this For to us a child is born, to us a son is giving, given, and the government, that is this righteous rule of God, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, that is his rule, his justice, the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then a day came when a woman named Mary, a virgin, who found herself with child by the Holy Spirit, sang a song. And, and, and the theme of her song was the mercy, the loving kindness of God. In fact, she said, all of this has happened, the end of her song. She says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy or loving kindness of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. She said, this one is coming, and he's the very manifestation of the chesed, the loving kindness of God. And he shall build a rule, a government, that shall be just and righteous. Boast in him. The Apostle John would speak of him, and he would speak of this one who is full of grace and truth. He would speak of him as this one who is the very manifestation of the love of God. He would eventually say, the Apostle John, that this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. It's very love, it's very steadfast love. We love God, but he loved us, and he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Apostle Paul would speak of this one who has now come, as he writes to Titus, and he puts it like this in Titus in chapter 3. 
He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. You see, anybody reading that who was familiar at all with the Old Testament, bells and whistles should have been going off in their heads. Oh, yes. Boast in Him. Take confidence in Him. Don't take confidence in your wisdom. Don't take confidence in your might. Don't take confidence in your riches. Take confidence in Him. Boast in Him. Praise Him. Exalt Him. Rely upon Him. Because He's the very loving kindness of God. He's the steadfast love of God. Steadfast love of God is manifested in Him. When the, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works we had done, not because of our own might, um, by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. And the renewal of the Holy Spirit, and we poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This one, the very righteousness of God. When the Apostle writes to the church in Rome, he speaks of this righteousness of God. Chapter 1, he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But also in this gospel, the wrath of God is revealed because of ungodliness, judgment to come against ungodliness. But then is there any hope? And the answer is yes. Because the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. For all who believe God comes to rule in righteousness. And when he comes, his loving kindness comes. When he comes, his steadfast love comes. When he comes, his mercy comes. This very one in the person of Jesus. And so the apostle writes, don't trust in your wisdom. You would have never figured this out. Don't trust in your own might. You could have never conquered sin and death. So he writes to the church in Corinth. And he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And he asked the same question of Jeremiah. Where's the wise man? Can anybody figure this out? Can anybody think through how it is that we're to be reconciled to God? Anybody think through? Anybody get it? Anybody understand? Anybody on your own figure this out and and make it happen that we can face the presence, the very judgment of God. And he says, where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Is not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach To save those who believe. He said, listen, the Jews demand a sign. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. Because how could that be? How could one crucified save people? It's folly to the Gentiles. What sense does this make? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. To prove that, Paul says, how many of you were that smart? How many of you were that rich when you were called? He answered, well, none of us. And so he says, he that is God, he's the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. 
Therefore, as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So look, at this, this Lord Jesus, he's the one, he's the very wisdom of God. This very one, our Lord Jesus, he's the very righteousness of God. This very one, our Lord Jesus, he's the very holiness, the sanctification of God. He's our redemption. Boast in, rely upon Him, trust in Him. Don't boast in anything true of you. Don't boast in your own wisdom. Don't boast in your own might. Don't boast in your own riches. All that was evident in that night that Jesus was betrayed, or at least it should have been, it would become. When He took bread, Jesus did that night, and He broke it. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. What are we to remember? Many things, but at least this. That we're to boast in him. Because he's the loving kindness of God. He's the steadfast love of God. This one who said, I will save my people from their sins. And he has. This just one, this one who rules and reigns over all things. We trust him. Because he rules and reigns in such a way that nothing can thwart his promise from being fulfilled. Christ has come. The very righteousness of God, the truth of God. Yes, God is faithful to all that he promises in him is us the very wisdom of God it's the power of God power of God over sin and death because by his death sin and death were defeated and all who trust in him and be saved from the wrath of God nothing else can do that nothing else can save us not our wisdom not our power not our riches. They're just scarecrows. When it comes to the judgment of God. We trust Christ. Let's pray. Father. Pray for me and for us that that would be true. We confess how easy it is to desire security in this temporal world by temporal things. Things we can see in taste and touch and all of that. Forgive us. May none of these things be for us what Christ is to be for us. The wisdom, the righteousness, the holiness of God, our redemption. So Father, we come now to this table as those who boast in Christ and in Christ alone. God, even as we come, we make that proclamation, we trust in Christ that we know that nothing else will save us. Nothing else will help us, but only Him. So Father, at this time, I pray you would set aside this bread and this juice in such a way that would enable us to know that Jesus is present here with us that we may fellowship with Him and feed upon Him. That even as we come by way of testimony, by way of witness, we come to, to receive from him that we would be strengthened by him.
to live in such a way that would be worthy of Him, pleasing to Him. So, Father, please do that work now. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace. Evangelical Presbyterian Church is the table of the Lord. He invites to it all who boast in Christ, all who find their confidence in Him. Thus, all who understand themselves to be bankrupt sinners, without hope except in His sovereign mercy, but yet who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as He's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners, our wisdom. Justice, righteousness, redemption, holiness. And all who desire to live in a way that shows that Christ is our all in all. That he is the one. That's true for you. Let me invite you to come. These two can come down this section, this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup as you do. Let go off in your head. I boast in Christ. Please come. Oh, 
pray with me. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for our salvation, God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that through various means this kindness in Jesus would be made known, that people would cease to trust in themselves, but would come to know you through our Lord Jesus. Father, we pray this be true for those who come to this church who are part of our community, God, we pray that we each would know the Lord and understand Him and boast in our knowledge of Him, rely upon that. Pray for our kids as they're growing up, God, that they would hear this message of the gospel and believe that you would call them to be yours. For those who are struggling in our church, Father, who know this is what is true yet, to really rely upon it, to really believe it is a struggle and to live it out. So I pray for them that you would bring real conversion in our lives. Father, we pray this for community of Lawrence that through our witness that you would enable people to come to know, to know you, to boast in you, to trust in you, to rely upon you. Father, we pray for the campus that that would be true there through the Ministries of Navigators and Varsity and Crusade and Student Mobilization and others. Father, we pray that you would bring this message of the gospel to the campus through our work here at Grace, through the work that Chad and Ryan direct. Father, for those who come from other countries, we pray for Len and his work with international student ministries. Father, we pray that you would show your kindness to those who in various places of difficulties in marriage and family and financial, physical, Father, that your kindness would be shown to each and all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help those who are fighting temptation to sin, sexual sin, lying, stealing, expressions of anger, gossiping, and all of us who live in a world that draws us to spending our time and resources on that which is external and temporal, temporal and seen rather than that which is eternal, I pray, God that you would help us. That we would not be tempted to trust in any other than Christ. That all things would be in submission to Him. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Response to our benediction will be to sing together the doxology, that great praise of God. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy, to only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.